In a tournament field just outside Paris, two groups of knights are going at each other. It's a familiar scene in this age. Horses' hooves are thundering, heavily armed men are yelling, and lances are shattering as they slam into shields. It's the high summer of 1186, and amid all this semi-organised mayhem rides Geoffrey, Duke of Brittany, the 27-year-old son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. He's been a famous figure on the tournament field for years. We've already seen him in action earlier in this series, competing alongside his late brother, Henry the Young King. Today, as usual, Geoffrey is right in the thick of the action, but he's not feeling his best. In fact, he's all over the place. He's been suffering with a fever and something nasty is going on in his bowels. Truth be told, he shouldn't really be out there. Still, it's a tournament. He loves them. And if he's strong enough to sit on his horse, he's going to get stuck in. What's more, Geoffrey's in Paris for another reason. He's visiting the King of France, Philip Augustus, who's become a tight friend of his. In a week or so, Philip will turn 21. But Geoffrey's not just come by to watch his mate blow out the candles on his birthday cake. He's here because the two of them are plotting. Geoffrey's always been a sly one. Remember, the chronicler Gerald of Wales calls him a hypocrite in everything, a deceiver and a dissembler. A slimeball with the gift of the gab. Now Geoffrey wants Philip's help in a daring plot he's been hatching for a while. He's going to attack both his elder brother Richard and his father, Old Henry, seizing the right to rule Anjou, the Plantagenet heartlands. Philip has signalled his support for Geoffrey by naming him Seneschal of France, a massively prestigious title. So Geoffrey is especially keen to compete at the tournament. He wants to impress Philip and remind him he's an ally worth having. If it means a few days in bed to recuperate afterwards, so be it. Big mistake. The original accounts of what happens at this tournament are unclear, but from what we can tell, as the knights smash into one another, Geoffrey falls off his horse. Does he lose his grip because he's under the weather? Or is this just one of those things that can happen in the Malay? We don't know. What we do know is Geoffrey ends up on the ground, a very dangerous place to be in a tournament. It's not because it's hard for knights in full armour to get up when they fall over. That's a myth. It's simply that the ground is where those thundering horses' hooves do their thundering. Sure enough, as Geoffrey tries to get up, a warhorse tramples right over him. In the Middle Ages, the horses they use in tournaments could be very big, weighing up to 500 kilos. Now add the weight of a rider and armour on top of that, then send all that force through the tiny surface area of four hooves. Let's just say, if you can avoid getting stomped by a medieval warhorse, I recommend you do so. Geoffrey, sadly, can't avoid it. Badly crushed, but still alive, 
he's helped from the field and taken off to get urgent medical attention. He's in sorry shape, and it's not just the injuries, but also the illness he's suffering. It may well be dysentery, the same disease that killed his brother, the young king. So, on August the 19th, 1186, Geoffrey Plantagenet dies. His death is said to be to the grief of all of France, and especially to the king. Which king? Well, Old Henry for sure. Gerald of Wales writes that Old Henry is beside himself when he hears what's happened. He's lost yet another son, and the pain brings flooding back all the memories of the young king's death just a few years before. But the king who makes the biggest show of grieving for Geoffrey isn't his father. It's Philip Augustus. Philip wails and gnashes his teeth and orders that Geoffrey should be buried with the highest honours at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. At the funeral, Philip creates the most extraordinary scene. Here's Gerald of Wales. When the solemnity of the funeral rites was finished, and with the last earth cast upon it, the body was lowered down to be enclosed in the mournful sepulchre. So great was the vehemence of the king's grief that he tried to throw himself into the open grave with the body itself. Yep, you heard right. That's the king of France trying to jump into Geoffrey's grave to be with his dead friend. Apparently, he has to be wrestled back from the edge by his attendants. It's some sight. But if Philip really is distraught about Geoffrey, his feelings about the rest of the Plantagenets are not so sentimental. He's going to spend the next 30 years making their lives as difficult as possible, starting right away, the second the tomb slams shut on Geoffrey's battered corpse. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for. Episode 20, A New Nemesis. You don't meet too many Augustuses these days, so before we get any further with our story, let's find out a bit about who Philip Augustus is and where he gets his name. Philip II is the only son of the late French king Louis VII, long-time sparring partner of Henry II and ex-husband of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Philip was born in 1165, in August as it happens, but it's not simply the month that gives him his nickname. Augustus is first recorded by a French physician called Rigor, who finds the king so compelling that he quits practicing medicine to write an account of his life. When Rigor calls Philip Augustus, he's deliberately echoing a name that goes back to Roman times. Augustus was the first ever Roman emperor. He reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD and is often considered one of the greatest rulers in the whole of human history. Big shoes to fill, right? But this isn't just Rigor being a total suck-up. Philip Augustus had wild ambitions for himself and for the power of the French crown. 
he wanted to restore France to a magnificence that hadn't been seen for centuries. As we heard a few episodes ago, Philip was crowned co-king at the age of 14. There are plenty of great stories about Philip's early years, but one in particular shows how ambitious he was. It goes like this. Philip was sitting at a council meeting when he was still a young teenager. The meeting was dragging on and on, and the grown-ups were having some big policy discussion. Philip was sitting staring off into the distance, looking mega bored and chewing on a piece of straw. Someone told him to snap out of it, but Philip said, Oh, don't mind me. I was just thinking about whether I might be able to return France to the glory days of Charlemagne. Which isn't a bad comeback, because Charlemagne was the most renowned French ruler in all medieval history. He became King of the Franks, as the job was officially titled, in the 8th century. And through military conquest and brilliant political judgment, he ended up ruling a territory nearly as big as the modern EU. He smashed pagans, dominated lesser kings, and got himself crowned Emperor in Rome by the Pope on Christmas Day 800 AD all the while ushering in a great cultural renaissance in Christian learning. So, between his namesake Augustus and his hero Charlemagne, we have a clearer idea of where Philip saw himself going, even from a young age. Yet to get there, he had to face the fact that when he arrived on the throne, he was a long way from being the most powerful man in France, let alone a titan of French history. The big dog is Henry II, and although the Plantagenets like fighting each other as much as they like fighting their enemies, Henry's family still looks set to dominate for many years to come. But little by little, subtly and almost invisibly at first, Philip got to work on his great project. He made huge plans to revitalise Paris as a capital city, taking on expensive but long-overdue works like paving the streets and rebuilding the city walls. He started expanding the lands he controlled by taking on neighbouring lords like the Count of Flanders, buying up some lands and seizing others by military force. He raised money for his royal budget through anti-Semitic policies, disgracefully extorting and robbing all the Jews who lived on his lands. Jewish people were forced to pay huge sums just to keep their own property, then told to convert to Christianity or else face even more taxes. Finally, they were kicked out of the realm altogether and forced to leave their goods behind. One thing Philip didn't do straight away, though, was butt heads with the Plantagenets. Far from it. To start with, he was nice as pie. At Philip's coronation, as co-king of France in 1179, young Henry carried the French crown in the procession. Later, Philip made good friends with the ill-fated Geoffrey. Yes, he occasionally stirred up trouble, for example, gently encouraging young Henry and Geoffrey to go to war with old Henry and Richard over Aquitaine in 1183, but he was always careful to do this at arm's length. 
In the early 1180s, he played nice with old Henry. He called on him for political advice. He asked him to step in and mediate in disputes with nobles like the Count of Flanders. He compromised over tricky political issues. In autumn 1185, old Henry fell ill and was lying poorly in bed. Who came to visit and cheer him up? Good old Philip. None of this seems to suggest that here is a guy who's going to torment the Plantagenets for decades to come. If anything, it looks like peace and love and harmony are going to reign supreme. But all along, Philip Augustus knows what he wants and thinks he knows how to get it. He's as cunning as old Henry himself, and he knows that unlike old Henry, time is on his side. So whereas in the first half of the 1180s, Philip was content to play nice, when Geoffrey dies in 1186, he decides his time has come. He's going to strike hard at the Plantagenets, so hard they won't know what's hit them. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Before the dust has even settled on Geoffrey's tomb, the French king goes on the attack. Philip takes aim at Old Henry on several political fronts at once. Three of them are about territory. One of them is about love. Let's start with the land. In 1186, Geoffrey had been Duke of Brittany, a title he held through marriage to Constance, who was heir to the place. The couple had two young daughters, and Constance is pregnant with their first son when Geoffrey dies. Straight away, Philip claims that Geoffrey's daughters should be sent to him to look after, by virtue of him being king. He also suggests that he should be the guardian of Brittany until the kids grow up. Old Henry obviously can't stomach that. He's worked long and hard to bring Brittany into the Plantagenet sphere of control. So he sends some of his most senior administrators at top speed 
to Philip's court to find out what the hell is going on. When they get there, they find that Brittany isn't the only Plantagenet land in Philip's crosshairs. He's also sounding off about the Vexin region in Normandy, which he says is his, not Henry's. And he's muttering dark threats about Toulouse, way down in the south of France, where Richard has been attacking the Count for defying Plantagenet authority. Philip says that if Henry and Richard don't lay off Brittany, the Vexin and Toulouse, then he's going to ride a huge army into their lands in Normandy and give them a taste of their own medicine. Then Philip mentions, in passing, that he's extremely unhappy that Richard hasn't yet married Alice, who's Philip's older half-sister. They've been engaged for nearly 15 years, and it's a mystery as to why the wedding still hasn't taken place. There are all sorts of rumours about why this might not have happened. One says that Henry's sleeping with Alice, who's in his care, that Richard knows about it, and that he's too disgusted to go through with the wedding. Which would be fair enough. Another says Richard just doesn't fancy her, and yet another says that Richard just doesn't fancy girls full stop. One final theory is that Richard does fancy girls, but he's more interested in marrying one from Navarre, which would bring him political and territorial advantages in the South. I'm not sure Philip cares which of these is true, but he does care that his half-sister is off the marriage market and under Henry's control. And in his new role as Plantagenet Tormentor-in-Chief, he can't pass up on any opportunity to pick a fight. Once Henry's ambassadors have patiently listened to Philip's long list of gripes and threats, they report back to their boss that the French king is mad as a bag of snakes, and that Henry should probably prepare for very serious trouble with this kid. But the Henry we know isn't going to back down. So during the six months that follow, there's a sense that dark clouds are gathering over France. War is on the cards. In the spring of 1187, that war looks like it's about to arrive. Both Henry and Philip have spent the winter raising armies. In May, Philip marches his huge body of troops into a region called Berry, where French royal lands overlap with Aquitaine. He lays siege to a castle called Chateauroux and dares the Plantagenets to come at him. Which, of course, they do. Henry and Richard march up with their own giant army, and for a few tense days, the two sides stare each other down from camps a few miles apart. Negotiators, some of them sent by the Pope, run back and forth. Everyone holds their breath. Then, there's a collective sigh of relief. Philip agrees to a truce with Henry for two years. Time to try and work out all their problems. He's seen the whites of Henry's eyes, and he's seen that the old dog isn't about to lie down just yet. So for now, Philip backs down, and it looks like relations might be about to return to the way they were before Geoffrey's death. Peace and harmony again. Except they're not. Far from it. 
because even while Henry and Philip are facing off at Chateauroux, with their men puffing up their chests and blowing raspberries at each other, the French king starts work on a new plan. This one, he knows, is far more likely to succeed than any amount of direct military confrontation. Philip begins fluttering his eyelashes at Henry's eldest son and heir, Richard. He hosts Richard for direct, in-person talks, where he tries to convince him to jump ship and abandon his dad. Philip knows that Richard isn't ready to do this at Chateauroux. He and Richard don't have anything like the close relationship he'd nurtured with young Henry and Geoffrey. And yet... Philip figures that planting the seed of an idea never hurts. And he's right. Once the truce is formally agreed and the armies disperse, Philip keeps nibbling away at Richard. He sends him persuasive messages. Your dad prefers your little brother John. Always has. And the old man's getting on. He won't be around forever. Philip's going to be the strong man of Western Europe after your Henry's gone. Do you want to be his enemy? or his friend, now's the time to choose. Richard thinks about it, long and hard, and he makes a decision. After Chateauroux, instead of going back down to Aquitaine, Richard heads to Paris. He heads to Philip's palace, and there he stays as a guest of honour for some time. The charming French king pays him no end of flattery and gets just as pally with him as he had been with Geoffrey. One gossipy chronicler says they're inseparable, that before long they're eating out of the same bowl, even sleeping in the same bed. Whether that means they're in bed together in the political sense or a romantic sense is left tantalisingly unclear, but more on that in the subscriber episode. But one thing's certain, old Henry doesn't like it. Old Henry hates it, and he decides that he's going to have to do something drastic. He's readying himself to stage a major intervention to drag Richard back into the real world, where the Plantagenets don't eat out of anyone's bowl but their own. When just at that crucial moment, news arrives in Europe that blows everything out of the water. That's next time on This Is History. If you're craving more Plantagenet drama now, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every week I reveal the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. This time, we're diving into some of the daring tales of medieval outlaws, and we'll be discussing the rumours of the romantic relationship between Philip and Richard. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today, or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.